Welcome back to the show. Uh, this is Brett, and you're listening to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. Um, today's episode is uh, definitely going to be quite different, but one that I feel is is terribly important. Um, I feel like this is actually one of my most important podcasts that I've released, and it will also be the last podcast on the pandemic. Um, unless there are some major new revelations or anything like that, um, I, I think I'm done with talking about the pandemic and for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, we need to start really thinking long term and we need to start thinking about where all of this is going, where is it all heading, um, and I'll get back to that in a minute. So I want to move more into solutions. I want to move more into exploring where this is all going and um, that is really what we cover in this episode. So more on that in just a second. But the other thing, the the other main reason is I'm starting to get a sense out there that we are now just in this perpetual cycle of outrage, right? So we, for the people that are aware of what's going on um, and, you know, the people that are aware basically know what's going on to some degree, right, to varying degrees. And um, what we're starting to see now is everyone is just kind of locked in this this outrage echo chamber. And social media has become quite a toxic environment. I'm sure if you go and look at your own news feed, you'll basically just see that people are just pissed left, right and center at what Fauci says. And then the PCR tests and then it's, you know, the, the small businesses are closing and then it's Bill Gates. And then it's and it's just it's a never ending tidal wave of of toxicity, negativity, and outrage. And I think that if we want to move through this and we really want to evolve on multiple levels as a society, I think we're going to have to snap out of that. We're going to have to snap out of this constant manufacturing of outrage and anger and toxicity and whatever. Because at this point, um, you know, coming back to my, my first point, hindsight is twenty twenty. So at this point, we can look back and we have enough data. We not only need data, we can actually just have a look at what's happened in our communities. And sure, there might be isolated pockets in the world that have been more affected than others. But if I have to speak from a purely Canadian perspective, we have literally had, at time of recording, 22,000 COVID-related deaths. Okay, so COVID-related, I don't even want to bog us down with all of this, but died with COVID, died from COVID. Was it the comorbidities? Did the they classify the death certificates correctly? Blah, 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 right? It just keeps on going. Um, are the PCR tests accurate? Well, we're running them at 40 to 45 cycles. We know that they're not inaccurate, that, that they're not accurate. So the cases keep going up, right? The deaths have pretty well flatlined. We don't even know if people really died from COVID, with COVID, who knows? Right. So my point in saying all of this is we now need to shift our focus and we need to say, well, look, the the measures that have been put in place to, quote unquote, combat this virus and slow the spread and flatten the curve have been completely overblown and they continue to be completely overblown. What we're now seeing is the catastrophic fallout of uh, homelessness, of suicides, of depression, right, domestic violence. Unemployment is at an all-time high. And, you know, we, we now have to pit these two things together and say, is the cure worse than the virus? And I think if you look at this objectively with an open mind, you will have to agree that it is. 
plain and simple. But more disturbing than that is the fact that we're now, in one year, we magically have a vaccine. And not only do we magically have a vaccine, we also have this push for mandating it. And maybe not even a hard mandate, maybe just through forced coercion. So in other words, you don't have to get it, but if you don't want it, well, you're just not going to be able to go to your favorite restaurant. You're not going to be able to go watch that sports game. You're not going to be able to go out for a drink. You're not going to be able to go and watch your kid play sports at the arena, etc., etc. So it's a, it's a form of forced coercion. But as we move past all of that, and we start getting into things like tracking, contact tracing, surveillance, 24-7 surveillance, and this push to digitize society, to virtualize society, we now really need to be asking ourselves some serious questions. Because if this is all in response to a virus, how did all of this stuff magically happen within one year? How did we suddenly get a vaccine that was ready to go to market, right, is being distributed, how is it that we have now in LA, for example, we now have a daily pass? Okay, that's getting rolled out right now. Biometrical um, IDs, okay, vaccine passports, all of this stuff has happened in one year. And when I first spoke about all this stuff, people laughed at me and they said, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. And I said, sure, let's see how it all plays out. And honestly, I wish I was wrong. I really, I hope I'm still wrong about all of the stuff that we're going to talk about here today. But my guest, Guy Crittenden, good friend, uh, also an award-winning investigative journalist, a longtime uh, magazine editor, a person who really, really understands communication, but has also researched uh, some very serious um, global issues in the past, has spent a good deal of time um, sifting through uh, literature, research, and of course, his network and our network were also tapped into a lot of these independent journalists who have done amazing work at uncovering the things that we're going to be talking about today. So in today's podcast, what we're really doing is we're looking at the end game. Okay, the goal of this podcast is to say, where does this all lead? What is the purpose of all of this? Why is this happening when what I see in my neighborhood, and I'm sure many of you see in your neighborhood, is the hospitals are not necessarily overrun, okay? The, 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 the cases might seem to be going up, 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 but we're not necessarily seeing catastrophic um, hospitalizations and ICU beds that are full. And now we have doctors in Canada and around the world that are speaking up. We have scientists that are starting to speak up. We have nurses that are starting to speak up and other frontline workers. So we're starting to see now, once again, that what is actually happening on the ground is not matching up to what policy is and what is actually being implemented in terms of our daily lives. And for those of you sitting here in Ontario, in Canada, we are headed for a harsher Third lockdown, they say, mid-April. Why? Because now the cases are even going down. Why, why is this lockdown going to happen? Why are we looking at these rolling lockdowns? And I think that this episode aims to shed light on that, where we can now look at things and ask ourselves critically, okay, look, if this is just about a virus, then obviously we've botched the whole thing and we haven't needed to do this. So there must surely be something else behind it. And uh, today we're going to talk about things like... Uh, the Rockefeller, so the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, we briefly mentioned that anyway. We're going to talk about things like Event 201, 
which basically happened uh, before the pandemic, pre-pandemic. Uh, we're going to talk about the World Economic Forum, uh, the Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. And we're going to talk about all of these things that are actually happening because this is the policy that is trickling down from way up high and is actually affecting and basically dictating the World Health Organization, which is then dictating all of its member states to enforce the same types of policies around the world. Okay, so... Um, Again, you know, you, you might love this episode, you might hate it, um, that doesn't matter, I'm just presenting information here. But most of all, I feel compelled to present this information because I feel that it is of utmost importance. And if 2020 was the year of awakening or waking up, 2021 and beyond will be the years of consequences. And so this is my last ditch effort. I'm done with trying to wake people up and shout from the rooftops and what have you. The writing is on the wall. It is clear as daylight at this point. So the, the, the thing is for you now to decide what you would like to do with this information. And this is not a doom and gloom podcast by any means, right? This is me trying to cultivate awareness and also to get you to a level of heightened discernment so that you can really start thinking critically about some of these things. And truth be told, we don't know exactly where it's all going to land up, but the research and the things that we've pulled together in this podcast today at least are going to give you some pretty concrete evidence as to where this is all coming from, at least. And uh, as to where it's all going to head, well, I think there's some things that we already know. For example, vaccine passports, uh, geofencing, and the, the damping down of travel, etc., etc. So there's a lot of these things that are happening. But um, the rest remains to be seen. And my end goal here is to really get us to start thinking about community, to start thinking about how do we build a better future? How do we build the future that we want, all right? And I think the only way that we're going to do that is we're going to have to start to come together and start to think on a local level, what are we going to do? How are we going to help each other? How are we going to support one another? Because it's easy to ostracize people and to, to block people and unfriend people online. It's a lot harder to do that in real life. And so at some point, we're going to have to uh, put on our big boy and big girl pants and we're going to actually have to learn how to cooperate with one another. We're going to have to learn how to communicate with one another again because the dividing of society is doing nothing but divide us and pit us against one another when what we should really be doing is we should all really be uniting and uh, actually challenging the officials challenging the official narrative, challenging as to what's going on and standing up to authoritarian, draconian measures that are actually being put in place to so-called protect us. One of the great quotes that I took away from this episode was, um, was the following. The onus should not be put on the people questioning the narrative. The onus should be put on the people that are telling the official story. End quote. And I love that because... You know, just like we've seen with so many other areas, uh, with genetically modified foods, with uh, Roundup, etc., we release these things onto the market. We just put them out there. Vaccines, too. Put them out there. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, manufacturers are exempt from liability. Uh, politicians all still have their jobs. These people are not being affected at all. But now the onus is on us, the general public, who are questioning these things to prove that what they're saying is wrong. And it's incorrect. And when you try and do that, you're now censored by the big tech companies 
you're censored by social media platforms who are all in bed with the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what we dig into today in today's podcast. Um, and again, I encourage you to just watch this or listen to this with an open mind. Um, you can check out some of the resources in the show notes, which really back up a lot of what we're saying here. And uh, I'm, I'm truly sorry if some of this stuff is, uh, is shocking to you. Um, I'm sure it will be. And also, it might just seem so far out of your frame of reference that it just seems completely unbelievable. And and I totally get that. I understand that. So uh, this is really me um, voicing my concerns and just not holding back on anything uh, with this. And uh, this will also be my final say um, with all of this, uh, to to be quite frank, unless there are some major revelations that happen. So anyway, um, thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, Yeah, welcome to the show, Guy Crittenden. All right, Guy, welcome back to the show. This is actually your second time here. It's really good uh, to sit down with you, my friend. Hi there, Brad. Good to to be with you again. It's a real privilege. It it is. And, um, you know, I think since the last time I had you on the show, which is probably going back a few years now, you know, you and I have really become good friends, um, especially over the course of the pandemic and stuff. You know, we've we've grown quite close, and um, I really look at you as a confidant and a person who has done a lot of the hard work that others are not willing to do. Um, so before we launch into today, um, I'm just going to let those of you listening, you know, this episode is is going to be very different from what you're used to on the show, but I feel like it's really important because everyone is very much focused on the contagion, the health side of things uh, during this pandemic. And and yes, that's important, of course. But um, what we're going to be discussing today is what's actually going on in the background with all of this. And why are we seeing the measures that have been put in place? Uh, is it just because of a contagion? Is it just because of health policy? And I think that what you're going to discover today is no, it's not. And uh, Guy, I'm going to hand the mic over to you and maybe just give people a bit of your background, um, and especially as an investigative journalist, um, just so that people get a sense of who you are and and what your um, story is. Okay, sure. Um, Well, the elevator pitch for for me, uh, you know, I'm from Toronto, went to the U of T, did a degree in English, which I thought would never have any practical value. You know, I just went to university for the pure education. <clears throat> but uh, turned out that an English degree served me well because uh, in my late 20s, I joined a small publishing company and I started a, what became a a 25-year career as a magazine editor and writer. And I co-published and edited um, two magazines that were directed to the environmental services industry in Canada, one on pollution control and another focused on waste management and recycling. And that's worth mentioning because in the current situation that we'll get into, And when we talk about the fourth industrial revolution and the hijacking of the environmental movement, which uh, hopefully we'll at least mention briefly, um, I really have a fairly deep background 
in not so much the Greenpeace save the whales side of things, although I support that too, but I've, I've got a pretty strong background in researching articles, some of which I won awards for over the years, um, into corporate malfeasance and a phenomenon that Robert Kennedy Jr. talks about a lot, which he calls corporate capture of regulatory agencies. And I experienced that a lot in my career. Anyway, just to fast forward up to today, uh, in 2013, I traveled to Peru. I had had a number of life-changing experiences, including my first experience with shamanic visionary plants. And um, it really altered my perspective. And I came back to Canada. And within a year, I had left my job. And I spent the past six or seven years just full-time researching geopolitics and working as an independent writer on environmental themes and some stuff about shamanism and things like that. So it's funny, as I looked at my life in 2020 and the vortex that I was sucked into of researching and writing uh, about the COVID-19 uh, uh, phenomenon, I'll call it. Uh, I refuse to call it a pandemic because that would legitimize the claims being made around this virus. Um, but uh, as I got drawn into that, I reflected back on my life and I thought, well, in a way, um, my life is, was a perfect background, especially the past six years of, in, of research into uh, essentially how our governments were taken over by corporations years ago. So it was the perfect background. And I had been focusing my writing on, you know, looking at things like U.S. imperialism and Canada's participation in some dirty proxy wars, like the one we waged on Libya that destroyed that country and the one we attempted in Syria. And, um, <clears throat> and so that I, I, I had that good background, but I have to admit, I didn't see the medical tyranny coming. And I didn't, I, it really wasn't until last year that I woke up to the globalist agenda and the things that the World Economic Forum are on about. But I was, I was able to get up to speed quickly because I had that deep background. Right. Well, um, and, you know, for for myself, um, I think that, you know, having also spent a lot of time researching things, particularly in the vaccine space um, into, uh, you know, um, the ag tech industry, genetic modification, the biotech industry and stuff like that. So, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the stuff, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this uh, as, as our conversation unfolds, but a lot of the things that are happening on the medical side of things, um, I sort of saw them coming along the way. But just like you, I, I did not um, foresee a, a health crisis that would be essentially ushering all of the things in that we're going to be talking about. So um, I think this is going to be a great conversation because we've got multiple points that are converging, but we're sort of coming at it from uh, from different angles, 
right? Um, you know, and I think that uh, for the conspiracy theory side of things, you know, if we take a look back over the last year, uh, you know, you and I have had many conversations about all sorts of stuff, um, you know, orbiting around the, the central theme of COVID-19. And the the sad truth of it all is that a lot of it, um, dare I say most, has actually unfolded um, almost exactly as we predicted. So um, I want people to just take that on board here. And I also want people to understand that, um, you know, we don't know everything. We don't know exactly how things are going to unfold. But the things that we're going to talk about on the show today, um, I encourage you to go and actually look at them for yourself, because some of the things you're going to hear are going to be quite shocking, and they're going to seem very much outside of your frame of reference. Um, I know some of the stuff that's coming down the pipeline is outside of my frame of reference. So I'm really um, looking to you to educate me today as well, Guy, because I know you you know, you know basically do this full-time. Um, you are essentially a full-time researcher and writer, and uh, you do a great job, and you know, you're, the, the people that are around you, um, I think, really value your contribution to this conversation. So, um, yeah, we can, can you talk to my family? <laughs> I think I have certain family members and friends that need to hear that. <laughs> Doesn't sound quite the same when I say it. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, why, why don't we just start there? I mean, we are without question, we are in the middle of the Great Divide. And, you know, one of the articles that you wrote that really went viral and got you onto a bunch of different shows, and, and I know it was read a lot of times, I've shared it a bunch of times, uh, is the Great Bifurcation. You, you know, we are in the middle of um, uh, the, probably the most polarizing times that we've ever been in, I, I would think. Um, and, you know, so, so perhaps let's talk about the two camps, because obviously there's going to be people that may listen to the show and perhaps they, they will turn off in the next 10 minutes. And those people are going to think we're completely crazy. And then you've got the other people who um, think that uh, people who are subscribing to the official narrative that are super excited for vaccinations, that are really lockdown enthusiasts, and let's put our masks on, let's stay at home, let's do all the things, and let's hope that the virus just goes to zero, there's really two camps there. And each of those camps thinks that the other are completely crazy. So I don't know if you want to um, sort of start there and, and maybe expand a little bit on that and give us your insights into where you think we're at right now. Yeah, uh, well, it's interesting. I, I have a, I'll, 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 I always, uh, my wife always says, gee, guy, you did that interview and you didn't plug your website or anything. So I'll just mention it now and get it out of the way if you don't mind. If people sure. want to follow my writings, <clears throat> my website is called hypnosis.co. So it's not a .com. And hypnosis is spelt a little unusually. It's H-I-P like hip and then gnosis like sacred knowledge, G. And SOIS or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote an article last year, as you say, called The Great Bifurcation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that, that article went around the world. I've never seen anything like it. And I guess I really captured the zeitgeist in that article. And people can go to my site and read it. But um, as you say, uh, what I did is without... Um, without saying one side was right and the other side was wrong. I simply described the two sides. And I had letters from people as far away as Sub-Saharan Africa, 
or the islands in the Coral Sea, <laughs> saying wow. they were very grateful for that article because it gave them a perspective that allowed them to open up a conversation with their friends and family <clears throat> as to what these two sides are. And yeah, you know, you described it already, but just the gist of it is you've got the, you've got one side that is accepting the official narrative that we have a dangerous and deadly virus working its way through the population. And we all have to cooperate in uh, cooperating with lockdown, staying at home, wearing masks, social distancing, putting lots of hand sanitizer on and all that kind of stuff. And that camp thinks, well, if we just cooperate a little longer, you know, it'll be just a few more weeks, maybe a few more months, but then life will return to normal. And I have friends and, and uh, acquaintances who subscribe to this, who when I talk to them on the phone or whatever, they say, oh, you know, um, my daughter's planning to go to England in the spring and after things, you know, return to normal. And there's a very strong implication, although they might not say it, that it'll be after their family takes the vaccine and mm. then they will be exempt or so they think from the various restrictions that will be imposed on people like myself who will refuse this uh, drug. I'm not even going to call it a vaccine because it is not a vaccine. An experiment. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and then the other camp, which I fit into and have been somewhat of a leader in just a little protest group in Canada, um, is, is a group that understands uh, that there is actually uh, collusion going on at the highest levels and that our governments and our corporations have merged into something that Mussolini called fascism. When you have big business and big government colluding in their own mutual interests and not uh, introducing policies for the benefit of the population, that's classic fascism. Except this time we have an overlay called technocracy. And finally, uh, imagine if the Nazis um, had the tools that we have today for surveillance and control. Mm. How, imagine how much further people like Hitler or Stalin could have gone. And that's the world we're in right now, is that the technology has caught up with the vision of the 1930s eugenicists. And there is a plan that is being rolled out that is being uh, openly discussed, but using a lot of weasel words to make it sound like it's for the benefit of the population. So anyway, the point being that for people in my camp of the great bifurcation, cooperation, the very thing that the other side thinks is going to get us out of this mess, is the very thing that's going to lead us down a very dark path. And I'm not going to pull my punches. I know your some of your audience, this may be too much for them to hear. Um, but I know you had uh, <clears throat> Susan Stanfield on, on the program a while back, and she mm -hmm. spoke openly of genocide. And we will get into this later. Um, but there is, there is a depopulation agenda that's part of this. And this is not a, my opinion. This isn't some wild claim I'm making. This is simply what 
my research and the research of people whose research I consider credible are finding. And what's interesting is they're very reluctant to use words like that because it sounds like rhetoric. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. uh, uh, so I'm careful about it. But I'm a student of genocide. I've studied the Holocaust in, in university. And there's a very uh, nefarious side to what's going on. And we need, to, we need to talk about that. Well, and I think that's exactly it, right? We do need to talk about it. You, you know, when we talk about things like free speech um, and, and things like that, you know, um, unfortunately, we're in this position now where we're, it's almost like taboo to talk about anything outside of that. And I think that what a lot of people will say, I mean, this is what we see out there is people will, will sort of say, well, you know, some of the things you're talking about, I mean, it's completely crazy, right? You're just a conspiracy theorist, blah, blah, blah. No one in the New York Times or the Atlantic or on CNN, like no one else is talking about that. Right. Mm -hmm. They just label people as complete whack jobs and then that's it. You know, so I think you, you do have a lot of um, people that th this is so far out of their frame of reference that it's almost it, it's almost like a dystopian sci fi movie. Right. And, and it's very hard to to wrap your head around. And I will just say again, you know, as someone who's been researching the health side of things and, the, and you know, the push for mandatory vaccinations, which we'll talk about very briefly in this episode, um, you know, I could see it coming down the road from, from 10 miles away. So um, I think, you know, what I'm going to try and avoid here in our conversation, I know we're going to talk about vaccines a little bit, but I really want to keep us pointed on where does this all lead Okay, because I think that's the important thing, right? We've spoken enough on the show about vaccines and, you know, is is the virus real? Is it not real? Um, you know, treatments, blah, blah, blah. So I want to just, in, in our efforts here to constrain our time, is let's talk about where we're going and what happens next. And you kind of alluded to a couple of things that I think would be a good starting point for people. And one of those is... Um, you know, the things that you're talking about. So when you use words like genocide, when we use things like corporate capture, technocracy, and so forth, um, I think let's bring the World Economic Forum into the fold, because I think that's a great starting point for people. It's open source. You can go and read it all on there. And let's talk about the, the World Economic Forum and their whole agenda. Yeah, that's, that's, and I agree with you, although we will mention a few things about vaccines. Um, what I've encountered in my role as an activist in, in the past year, and your listeners should know that I went to almost 30 protests in Toronto in a row on Saturday afternoons. And I was one of the people in the marches. I was one of what Doug, Premier Doug Ford called the, uh, the, the yahoos, which was his equivalency of Hillary Clinton's The Deplorables. And so I, I, I've been very active in this. And I will also mention that I am not speaking to you from Canada. I've actually left Canada. I don't know for how long with my wife and stepson and dog, um, because we have seen the writing on the wall and we want to be in a place where we can watch from afar and see what's going on. So I have considered Canada to be in such a bad situation that I've actually left. So that should tell people something. And, um, and, and, and you actually sold your house. Like we're not just talking about rented your house out and left. Like you sold up and left just so that yeah, people we, understand that. Yeah. Well, we uh, and, and you'll, your listeners will learn more about this in a minute. 
we realized that, you know, our plan had been to wait until my youngest stepson had finished high school in four years and then sell our house at what, what we assumed would be a big profit and then go and travel. And what happened was we realized that uh, real estate in Canada is now a toxic asset and that it will drop uh, in value this year. So we decided to get out ahead of that. And then we thought, well, let's do a little traveling while we can. And just because the government says we shouldn't be, uh, that's all. In fact, in my opinion, that's all the more reason to do it. So we're trying to behave like free people and live the lives we want to live and not succumb to these edicts. Um, but anyway, yeah, getting back to the World Economic Forum, I was just reading an article from the National Post this morning, which uh, I don't know if the article was from today or a few days old, but they pointed out something that I already knew, which a lot of people may not realize, <clears throat> and that is that our Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, actually sits on the board. She's a full standing board member of the World Economic Forum. So she is regularly talking to uh, um, Klaus Schwab and, and the other board members. And we have what I consider to be in a sense a Manchurian candidate in our uh, premier, prime minister's office, including uh, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau himself, who is also a globalist although I view him more as a pawn uh, or puppet, and I view he's like the official spokesmodel for the globalist takeover of Canada, and Christia Freeland's more like his handler, much in the way that um, Dick Cheney was the handler for George W. Bush, and in the States now, uh, Camilla Harris is kind of the, the handler of the obviously mentally compromised uh, Joe Biden. So um, Christia Freeland, as this article discusses, is also on the board of something called the Aspen Institute Kiev. And we need to really think about this because we have leadership now at the national level in Canada <clears throat> that has divided loyalties. And in some, some people would call it treasonous. Uh, I won't get that inflammatory, but it's a great concern that our prime minister's office is occupied by people who have a committed allegiance to the World Economic Forum agenda. And what the World Economic Forum is introducing is a very top-down, tightly controlled form of global governance that will, be, that will utilize AI technology and so one of the things that makes all of this so difficult to talk about, Brad, <clears throat> is we, we, can't talk, we can't talk about one issue without also talking about another issue, without also talking about another issue. And it gets to be confusing. And as a writer, I have a hard time with this because what do I do? Do I write a separate article about 5G and then a separate article about the vaccine and then a separate article about the lockdown? and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> we, have to, we have to understand how all of these different factors interlock together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And if you don't understand, for instance, the real purpose of 5G in ushering the internet of things, and if you don't understand that the internet of things is really about the internet of bodies 
and how th this technology has nothing to do with just getting you faster download speeds for video games and movies, but it's actually a system by which we our biometrics can be surveilled and investors can make money from our biometric data. If we don't, if we don't have that complete picture, then we don't really get anywhere. And mm -hmm. so, for example, the, in my activism last year, and when we're out marching on the streets of Toronto, the, the number one thing that I kept encountering was people, when I talked to people on the street, they'd say, but why? Why would they be doing this? Mm -hmm. They couldn't believe that the biological crisis had been manufactured or exploited with a lot of fraudulent claims um, because they just couldn't, they couldn't see the bigger picture. They didn't know where it was headed, as you say. But anyway, what I've concluded <clears throat> is that there is this dystopian um, top-down uh, control grid that's, uh, that's being rolled out. And while we all argue about whether we should wear masks or not, or whether the lockdown should be extended, this agenda is being, this platform is being rolled out. And um, it, it, it will serve the interests of the 1%, and it will immiserate most of the remaining 99%. And when I say immiserate, I just mean make their lives horrible. We're, we're actually being led into a system of digital slavery and servitude. Um, and so, so you have to have that complete picture. So the World Economic Forum is ground zero for all this, and people do need to go to the, read the documents there, and Klaus Schwab's book, The Great Reset, yeah. and you'll see that he is advocating for what can only be termed a Mussolini style of top-down corporate fascism. Um, I, I think I'm going to add a couple of things there as well, you know, um, and perhaps just let people know if you don't know this. Back in 2019, in October, there was an event called Event 201. You can go and look that up, Event 201. Event 201 was um, essentially, I think, run or put on by the World Economic Forum. Okay, Johns Hopkins was there as a major sponsor as well, and um, Bill Gates and Microsoft was there as a as a main sponsor. So, um, you know, incidentally, Johns Hopkins provides most of the world with the medical data, and they are probably the the linchpin of all of the medical reports and data, particularly here for us in North America, and. Um, you know, obviously, Bill Gates, I don't really want to get into the whole Bill Gates discussion, to, to be honest. Um, but the point here is that Event 201, the, the, the whole event was surrounded or was a computer simulation of a coronavirus pandemic. Okay, that's what Event 201 was. What if there was a coronavirus pandemic? What would we do here? And the same players that we see in the background that are running the show and that are rolling out policies um, behind closed doors are the same people with the, at, that were at that event. And lo and behold, um, you know, a few short months later, uh, we then were hit with a pandemic that was announced in January of 2020. So that event was there. Now, the second thing I'll say is, you know, you mentioned um, Klaus Schwab's book, The Great Reset. Um, I happen to actually get a copy of that book. I know you have too. And um, that book was published in the beginning of June of 2020. 
So I just want you to think about the context here of timelines. Okay, so that book, it's a it's a decent sized book. It's not a an encyclopedia by any stretch, but it's a good 250, 300 pages, if I'm not mistaken. That book was was printed and pressed at the beginning of June, literally three, four months into the pandemic. And the title of that of that book is not just the Great Reset, it's COVID-19. The Great Reset. That's the full title of the book. So I want you to look at these things in context here. You know, we're not just um, saying that, oh, look, these guys happen to be taking the reins. This was happening before things really kicked into full gear. Okay. To which I, to which I will add that, it, it, as many people know, it was exposed that um, medical uh, kits with the name COVID-19 mm-hmm. on them were distributed as early as 2017 uh, to various countries. And when this was disclosed, um, the uh, I, I'm not sure if it was the World Bank or a similar agency to that, went in and altered the wording on their website to be yeah. something innocuous like medical devices. But the actual um, industry code for the products uh, still contained the revelation that it was for COVID-19. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of evidence and circumstantial evidence to suggest that the people who, who staged the Event 201 conference uh, already knew that something was coming. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question here, a bit of a curveball. Do, do you feel that like COVID itself, like SARS-CoV-2, the actual virus, do you think that it exists or do you think that it's like completely fabricated or do you think that it was, you know, I know that there's, I don't want to get into it too much, but I know there's the whole um, idea behind, you know, gain of function breeding and, you know, the escape air quotes from a lab. And then, you know, so my question then is, do you feel like maybe it was leaked from a lab and it is a real thing and governments have just used that or the World Economic Forum and and the elites have used that to essentially capitalize on, on this crisis? I don't know what your take on that is. I'd flip it around and I'd say the burden of proof is not on those of us questioning the narrative. It's on the people promoting the official story. And when asked, some of our friends in the resistance movement have written to the Canadian government, the government of the UK, and other governments, and we've said, look, we would like proof that you have um, isolated the COVID-19 virus. We'd like evidence that this really is a separate thing, that you are then designing a vaccine to, uh, to treat and so on or prevent and the letters back from the government when they finally came after a great deal of, of delay was that, no, in fact, this has not been isolated. We cannot prove that it exists. Now, we can talk at length about what that means, but you really have to ask yourself, what are these uh, inoculations being designed for if we can't isolate this? But to answer your question in a more general way, um, yeah, what, what I think this is, I think what has happened is mostly the seasonal flu, but I do believe that a, a gain-of-function man-made virus was deliberately released from a lab, not because it was particularly lethal, because it's actually not 
any more lethal than the seasonal flu, except for about 1% of people who have a bad reaction and that can be treated with invermectin and uh, hydrochloroquine and so on. But I think, I think the virus was released because of the necessity of timing. They needed the virus, they needed the medical emergency to, to occur at the very same time that they wanted to roll out the 5G infrastructure. And uh, so for, for some reason, they need, that, they need that vaccine in our bodies around the same time that they throw on the 5G. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. And I just want to um, circle back to a couple of things. You know, um, I actually just posted today on social media um, a letter from Health Canada. It's in black and white that basically said exactly what you just said. You know, we, we have not isolated the virus um, and we have no record of proof. So, what, and I don't want to get into what that means. Um, I think, you know, I've got a podcast, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, there's a great podcast that I've done with Dr. Thomas Cowan and uh, Sally Fallon. Uh, they wrote the book called The Contagion Myth. And while I don't necessarily agree with everything that they say, I think that they do present some pretty compelling arguments. And in that podcast and in the book, um, you know, uh, Dr. Cowan speaks a lot, um, you know, Andy Kaufman as well speaks, they speak a lot about you know, Cox postulates and um, these types of, you know, r real like science-y kind of criteria that are required to actually um, deem something an infectious agent or a pathogen. So um, I'm, I'm going to just leave that out there for um, those of you listening. So, you know, we're, I don't want to take up guys' time and this podcast talking about that. Um, the so, so coming back to... Um, the like the World Economic Forum and and all of that, um, you know, we'll get into five G and that sort of thing as well. But you know, as we talk about this this top down rolling out this globalization, I mean, you know, we're now using a health crisis, whether it's a manufactured crisis, whatever you want to believe about that, we are without question capitalizing on this current crisis, and we're using it to usher in other things. Okay, we'll get to those and other things. Yeah, that, yeah. Don't forget Brett, that uh, Klaus Schwab also predicted in speeches and in writing, uh, very similar to Event Two Hundred One. I forget the name of it, but they had a similar um, tabletop exercise built around a cyber attack, and uh, Schwab has been openly predicting that there will. Uh, very soon be some kind of cyber attack that will make the COVID-19 pale in significance by comparison. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, being, we're being forewarned that there could be um, an attack on the internet or the power grid uh, at any point. So people need to have an awareness of that. But okay. to, tie, to tie this into the corporate agenda and where this is all going, People need to wrap their heads around um, what uh, Klaus Schwab calls the fourth industrial revolution. And, uh, and what one of my favorite researchers upon whose work I rely uh, heavily, um, uh, oh, help me out here. Uh, is, is it Whitney Webb? Uh, I was going to mention Whitney Webb in a second, but uh, my friend in, in Pennsylvania there, the lady... Oh, Alison McDowell, yeah. Yes, Alison McDowell, excuse me there. And Alison um, 
has done some of the best research into uh, all the ways in which the digitized internet of things and digitized internet of bodies will work. And what she has found out is that there are all kinds of um, very weird science fiction-y kinds of ways that the new economy is going to function. Um, it's going to be very gamified and casino-like. And I'll remind, a lot of people might remember the Pokemon exercise that took place a few years where people wore these, um, I guess these, was it a Google eyeglasses or something that allows you to see Pokemon characters running around in the real 3D world. And so people participated in this live exercise and they put on the Google Glass and they ran around chasing these um, Pokemon characters. And it was, was, I'm sure it was a really fun game. What a lot of people didn't realize is that that game was sponsored by the CIA. And it was in fact an intelligence gathering exercise. And what they were doing was they were pre-testing the technology that will actually be a very, a very significant part of the new economy where we will have digital twins and in which our biodata will be mined in the way people mine cryptocurrencies. And Microsoft's patent with the 666 in it explicitly describes how that will work. And, um, and Alison McDowell has, uh, has revealed a lot about where this is going. And, and if we understood what that is, there's really, uh, it's a world of where humanity itself will be herded into a kind of virtual reality world, what Max Egan, the Australian vlogger, calls the mainframe. And we will be living our lives, if they have their way, sitting in front of tele um, uh, computer screens, getting telemedicine, telelearning, shopping online, um, really not having a lot of contact with other people and sort of disappearing into a digital fantasy world and doing coding jobs. And this is why you're seeing the box stores being the mm -hmm. only one to be left open because what they really want us to do is, is shop online or at most go to the grocery store and have our groceries brought out to us. It's, uh, it's a completely different economic model. And it's not a model that is being democratically arrived at. It is being imposed on us by people that we never elected. Uh, certainly Trudeau did not mention this when we were voting for him or not voting for him in the last election. But I did, neither you nor I have any say in who gets appointed to the World Economic Forum or the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. And yet these people are determining our futures and they're getting a lot of cooperation from the corporatized governments, which are, have really merged. And, and just yesterday, I listened to a terrific podcast that I recommend to people. Um, the investigative journalist in the States, Whitney Webb, <clears throat> was interviewed on a program called The Last American Vagabond, which is a podcast you can get as well as a website. And in this show, she was discussing how Starbucks and Microsoft have signed up and been enrolled to help distribute the vaccines in the United States. And wow. there, you are literally going to have Starbucks using its 
technology for uh, distribution and so on is going to be used to distribute the vaccine. And Microsoft is going to be setting up a center, I think it's in Washington state, to administer uh, vaccines. They're hoping, hoping to inoculate 5,000 people a day. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little sketchy on all the details, but the point is uh, Starbucks, which I'll add, is also in the process of eliminating all of its workers, and it will be a complete AI storefront within about a year. And you'll go to Starbucks and you'll interact with a screen <clears throat> and some kind of robot device or automated system will give you your food and drink. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just want to pause you there and, and kind of um, pull some things together and backtrack a little bit, okay? Because I know for some people listening, you know, this is a lot to take in. This is a lot to digest. And, um, you, you know, they, if you've never heard any, any of the stuff before, but I want you to just think about it in the context of what's actually going on right now, okay? Um, you know, if we, if we consider that this is all, all of the measures that are being put in place right now are, are being put in place to help reduce transmission of a virus. Okay, that's what we're being told. We've got to get the cases down. We've got to flatten the curve. We don't want to overwhelm our hospitals. All of the things that you hear on the news 24 hours a day. That, that's what this is all being rolled out for. That's what we're being told. And what's interesting is when you say these things, I mean, just take a look, like, you know, no matter where you are in the world listening to this, you know, if you're in North America, this will really resonate. But for me, I've been sitting now since middle of December, when schools closed, my kids haven't gone back to school. Okay. So um, my daughter last year at the beginning of the pandemic, so from March until the end of June, she didn't go to school at all. They closed the school. And now all of the classrooms have shifted online. And she told me just this morning that um, the, the teacher, this is my older daughter, she's 13. She said to me, the teachers can, can look at what you're doing on your computer. Okay, so you can sit there on Zoom and you're in class. They can see if you're cheating on a test. They have access to what you're doing on your computer. My five-year-old son is now having to spend two to three hours a day on his iPad. That's his classroom for now. If you think about purchasing anything online, well, I purchased things. I made a conscious effort to not buy anything from Amazon over the holidays, right? I bought a couple of things from independent distributors. I haven't received them yet. Okay, it's been about six or seven weeks since I purchased those, give or take. But if you order something from Amazon, you get it here tomorrow. Okay, so if I didn't know any of this stuff, well, who am I gonna buy from? The guy that's gonna take six weeks or the guy that's gonna get it to me tomorrow? If you take a look at the stores, right? All of your stores, your restaurants, all of these things have been shut under the guise of stopping a virus. But once you understand what's actually going on with the uh, fourth industrial revolution, with the AI tech, takeover, you will see that this is essentially an effort to, it's the planned demolition of the economy and to basically just remove the middle class, remove small businesses, and then usher in essentially a tech-driven, a surveillance-driven system whereby your Amazons, your Walmarts, your Loblaws, and all of these big, these giant corporations will be the only people left standing. And we will not really have a choice of where to shop, where to go. And then you kind of have to ripple that out into what is, what is employment? What is the employment situation going to look like? 
because right now the employment rates are unprecedented. And I, I would venture out and say around the world, they're unprecedented. And maybe, maybe we'll talk about UBI um, in a bit, unless you want to talk about it right now. Um, and, and to that, I will add the geofencing. People need to mm-hmm. learn that term because uh, one of the things that is explicitly stated in the World Economic Forum documents and documents from other agencies um, is they, it's part of their goal to end world travel as we know it. Now, that doesn't mean that billionaires won't be getting on their private jets and going wherever they want, but they're trying to destroy the business where people would get on a, a jet and go to the Caribbean, say, for a two-week holiday. Uh, in Canada, they've, as what many people would know now, they've just cancelled all uh, flights on Canadian airlines anyway, uh, to and from the Caribbean and Mexico. Uh, and they're saying that that will last at least until the end of April. Well, you know, when they say at least, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be continued. And uh, in the area in Latin America where I currently reside, which shall remain nameless, um, the resorts near where we are at a, are at 7% capacity. And I am watching people in the local economy com- being completely wiped out and their livelihoods destroyed. And this is happening around the world. So one of the things if people need to realize is if you come over to my side and my way of thinking of things, instead of uh, staying home to uh, keep people safe, uh, by staying home, what people are doing and, and agreeing to not travel is they're actually destroying their future ability to leave the country and travel. And now in Canada, we have among the world's most draconian system has been introduced. It's a total violation of our rights. It's completely unconstitutional and it is going to face a legal challenge. But they have now instituted um, a policy where upon returning to Canada from anywhere in the world, you have to self-isolate for three days awaiting your airport uh, I don't know if the PCR test is administered at the airport or at the two-star hotel where you'll be put. Um, But you'll, even though you're required to have a negative PCR test before you board the plane to come home, you still have to serve three days of detention at a minimum cost of $2,000. And again, if they say it's going to be at least $2,000, you can guess it's going to be more. And then if you test negative, then you go home to serve out the rest of your two-week quarantine at home. And if you test positive, you're taken to a black site. You're taken to more of a internment camp style quarantine center to serve out the rest of your time. Now, I think some people just hear that and they think, well, that's good. People shouldn't be traveling and we don't need this new variant of the virus. But first of all, there's no evidence that there's anything special in terms of new new variants. We've known since last year that COVID has many, many uh, genetic mutations, dozens if not hundreds, uh, coronaviruses generally. And so they can cherry pick any strain of the virus they want and say, oh, this transmits more quickly than another type. It's very difficult to disprove that. And it's, at this point, it's simply a claim 
And based on that claim, you have Canadians being separated from their families and who cannot find out where they are and being taken away. Now imagine somebody like me who would be known to the authorities as an opponent of the official narrative. If I were to come back to Canada, I could be, they could make that PCR test, say whatever they wanted to test, because all they have to do is amp up the number of cycles. And I could be kept in one of those detention centers for months, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. potentially forever. And my family wouldn't even know where I am. And, well, and-, and it's amazing that within one year, we've got to the point where this is deemed by many people to be acceptable. Yeah. And I think that's the frightening thing. You know, if, if you if you just consider, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, that was uh, February. And here we are going on one year now. It, it has actually been more than one year. And, you know, when we started talking about these things, right, I mean, I think I got wind of them building um, these isolation centers is what they call them. Um, you know, Onyx was building them. They, they have built them out in the West Coast. And I believe SNC Lavalin was building them out in the East Coast. Uh, by the way, they just got $150 million from the federal government for those interested. Don't know what that was for. But anyway, um, so, so I think, you know, when we said these things initially, you know, everyone was like, oh, my gosh, you guys are conspiracy theorists, you know. They would never do that. The government would never do that. Justin Trudeau would never do. Oh, what do you think? They're just going to come and yank you off the street and throw you in a camp? Like, come on. And now those same people are actually cheering that on. It, like, like, like this is the right thing to be doing. And I think it's important for people to understand the context here, right? You know, you alluded to the PCR test, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes. But the PCR test, the, the World Health Organization, literally within minutes, of, of Joe Biden being elected, okay? Whether that's a coincidence or not, you do what you will with that. But the PCR test, the, the basic principle that it works on is amplification. So if you take something and, you know, the analogy I always use for those of you who have never heard this before is if I'm standing 10 feet away from a wall and I see a speck on the wall, I can see the whole wall with a tiny speck. If I move a step closer, the speck looks bigger. If I move another step closer, it looks even bigger. Till eventually I can get right up to that wall and press my eyeball on that speck. And it's going to look like the whole wall is covered with that speck. That's basically what PCR testing does. It's an amplification tool that should not be used for infectious disease diagnostics, okay, or to diagnose infectious disease. So that's one. But what we're doing now is instead of running, so the the higher you amplify it, the more you're going to see. Okay, and Anthony Fauci, um, the World Health Organization, they just released um, that document within minutes of Joe Biden being um, announced president or sorry, being sworn in. And they basically said, hey, everyone around the world, if you're a member of the World Health Organization, we want to just say that we're now a little skeptical about running PCR tests at 40 cycles or 35 cycles because you're getting high degrees of false positives. So we're saying to all providers that you might want to just check that and factor that in. And it turns out that what you should be running it at is, well, not at all, but you should be running them at 20 cycles, maximum 25 to get any kind of accurate picture. So to your point, Guy, is we're now presented with a situation where a PCR test can essentially pick up viral fragments and potentially even just DNA fragments in your body that naturally exist if you amplify it enough. So if we come out and say, okay, there's a variant now, or there's all of these variants, which is quite, I mean, it's, it's most likely because that's what viruses do, right? They mutate. All viruses do that. 
And if we now double down and we say, oh, okay, we're going to amplify the PCR test to 40 cycles or 45 cycles, what we can essentially do is everyone can be positive and everyone can be positive with which, which, whichever, whichever strain you want. Okay. When we consider, you know, coming back to this detention situation here, I want people to understand that this is actually happening right now. This is not something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, there are multiple reports now across Canada, literally within hours of Trudeau announcing that people arrived on Thursday night. They were met by cops and a white van and they were taken off to the hotel. And a report that just came out today from a young guy that's in one of those centers basically said, you are not allowed to leave your room. You have a, a police officer that is guarding the hall and you can't even talk to people in the other rooms. So you're not allowed to talk to anyone. You're essentially isolated for three days. They bring you food and water is what they're doing. And um, the, the, to, to follow that, and I know I'm expanding on this, but I think it's important for people to get the context here. Can you imagine now you go home Okay, hopefully you go home. Hopefully you don't have to go to an isolation center with the government. But now you go home and you, you, you self-isolate for 14 days. Great. And off you go back to work or you go to the store. And now bring in surveillance tracking, right? So let, let's bring in the 5G piece. Let's bring in surveillance here. And all of a sudden we're doing contact tracing. We've got all of these things in place. And you go down to the store to pick up some eggs or some whatever for breakfast. And it happens so that someone there tested positive, air quotes. Well, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have to go back home. You're going to have to get tested again. You're going to have to go back home and you're going to have to self-isolate for another 14 days as well as your family, most likely. So these measures, while on the surface, they're designed or presented to us to uh, essentially you know, reduce tr transmission of viruses, blah, blah, blah. What's actually happening is we're being corralled into staying at home and getting onto the computer. And that is you know, what, what Guy was talking about, is the digitization of things. So um, I just wanted to pull that together for some people and expand on that guy because, you know, it's one thing to just say it, but it's another thing to fully understand the whole picture there. So uh, last year in 2020, I attended 30 protests in a row in Toronto and also a couple of large protests with probably over 10,000 people in Ottawa where the French and English came together in a way that was very, very moving. And um, these, of course, they say the revolution won't be televised. We, we didn't get media coverage and whatever we did get was, was, um, was very heavily biased against what we were trying to call attention to. Um, but people need to realize in Canada that we've lost our right to free speech. You only have these rights if you exercise them. Well, the recent protests in many Canadian cities have been broken up, including at Dundas Square and Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto, where police in black Kevlar uniforms and paddy wagons and even had riot horses came in and broke up the protests. And some of my friends were arrested. Kellyanne Wolf is lead, one of the leaders of Hugs Over Mass uh, and has her own internet show was violently pulled off the podium, which was on mm -hmm. public ground, and arrested. And she's now been told she can't go within so many meters of either Queen's Park, where the legislature is, or, or Dundas Square, and so on. 
So uh, this is this is very disturbing um, on multiple levels. And whereas the police last year in 2020 used to ride their bicycles and protect us from traffic, um, they've come in and arrested people. And we are no longer allowed to peacefully protest in this country. And I don't think many people know that. No. And another story that's disturbing is uh, one of our protesters from Vancouver was scheduled to fly to Toronto to speak at one of the Saturday rallies. And the police in Vancouver would not, or the airport authorities would not let him get on the plane because of his social media posts that had questioned the official narrative. So mm. here you have somebody being told, you know, you can't get on the plane and you can't go to another city within Canada because, because of something you posted on Facebook. Like this is, this is Joseph Stalin era stuff. Well, I, th I think that, you know, and there's a couple of things I want to kind of segue into, but you know, when you look at places, I know a lot of people have brought this type of scenario up and compared it with the social credit scoring system in China, right? And if you've ever seen the Black Mirror episode, um, there's a Black Mirror episode on that where basically you get a score and your score, depending on how you behave in the world, uh, governs the rights that you have in the real world, right? So you might um, be able to get on a first class plane. Uh, you might not be able to fly at all. Uh, you might be able to go into a restaurant or not go into one at all. And, um, you know, when I first watched that, I was like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. You know, I mean, this was going back a few years. I was like, wow, that is just, that seems nuts. But then when you think about it, this is kind of where we're headed now, right? And um, most people won't realize this, but the, the Canadian government actually already has a framework called a compliance score. Okay, and they've said that people who refuse to get tested, um, obviously now you have to get tested coming back in, but going back a few months, if you refuse to get tested flying back into Canada or crossing the border, this would affect your compliance score. And so when I hear stories like that, I kind of wonder to myself again, what's going on in the background here, you, you know, because what we're being told to do is comply, 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 comply. And I think right now it's somewhat optional. But what do you foresee in the future? I mean, are we heading to a place where it's just not going to be optional at all? And if you choose not to comply, you're going to be living in the woods with the loincloth and a bow and arrow? Or, or what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's exactly where we're headed. And uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how many people contact me on a weekly basis, if not daily, <clears throat> to tell me they've sold their house in the city and they've moved, uh, they're moving out to a northern area or they're buying farmland to grow their own food. Um, they're taking uh, our, uh, the, uh, weapons training. They're learning how to fire firearms. Uh, people are buying uh, low denomination silver coins um, because uh, you know, prior to 1968, they were 80% silver. And they're doing things like this because they're they're envisioning a scenario where the uh, currency will no longer exist as we know it, and they're envisioning uh, this kind of bifurcation where people, as it explicitly says again in the World Economic Forum and United Nations documents, people are going to be pressured through tax and other coercive measures to live in the cities, and uh, and the 
out, areas outside of cities are going to be depopulated over time. You know, we can speculate as, as to how aggressive that depopulation is going to occur, but um, people wouldn't be taking these steps unless there was a, a significant reason, at least in their minds, to be doing so. And uh, maybe maybe we'll get into that. I'm just conscious of our time uh, suddenly, so so we, we might get into some of that. But um, you know, so with with all of this, um, you know, we're now just to just to kind of bring us into the the, the surveillance capitalism, bio capitalism, the tracking side of things, right? Because what we're now being told, you know, again, all of the stuff that we're talking about is is under the guise of, you know, we've got to stop the virus, right? We've got to stop the virus. We've got to protect people. And I want to come back and talk about this whole narrative around protect and cooperate and comply. So maybe we'll wrap up with that. But in order to now do this, we basically have to have surveillance, right? We, we basically have to be able to keep track of everyone. And now we're now we're looking at things like uh, digital identity cards. We're looking at things like a COVID passport, um, which I think will then be expanded into a uh, bio digital passport that will perhaps contain everything from your, you know, your your mortgage to your banking information to your driver's license, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, then the end point of that, uh, which is already happening in places like Sweden, uh, is essentially saying, well, look, don't worry about a card. Why don't we just put a chip in you, right? So let's just use a microchip instead. Um, perhaps talk a little bit more about what else is going on around this whole, the, the, the point of surveillance and the point of, um, you know, biocapitalism. What is that and, and why should we be concerned? Yeah, it's, it's interesting timing because I was just reading this morning that Ontario Premier Doug Ford has, is introducing a new digital identity card for Ontario. It's still somewhat at the development stage, but they're soft launching it and they're creating the awareness of it. And they're presenting it as something that's going to be incredibly convenient so that instead of having to have, say, a passport and a driver's license and a health card and all these things, you'll have everything on one card. Now I see that card as will could also be an app on your phone. And as you say, it could eventually be something implanted in you. And even if you're a person like me who's going to resist that at every stage, what's going to happen unless people rise up and rise up quickly and oppose this is uh, it's not so much that you'll be mandated to take this. It's just that you're, you'll be excluded from civil society if you don't have these things. So to get into a, a restaurant or a music concert, much less even, even travel between cities, you're going to have to have this card and it's going to have to have the right information on it, like a social credit score or a compliance score. Um, and it, it'll have to show that either you've been vaccinated or you're being tested every week. They'll make life very hard for anyone who doesn't take this shot. Um, so, so this is coming in fast and furious. And this is, again, why they need that 5G network to be rolled out which has extremely dangerous frequencies uh, that people can research. There's over 4,000 suppressed safety studies. There are many legal challenges being mounted around the world. Certain countries like Switzerland have stopped the rollout of 5G because the, um, the radiation is so dangerous to human health. But even if it wasn't, 
the purpose of it is not so that you can download a movie faster. The purpose of it is so that uh, Fortune 500 companies can mine your bio data and know more about you than you know about yourself and sell you, not only to sell you things, this is a myth that people have that, oh, they just want to know when I want to order a pizza and then it'll, the robot butler will (laughs) order my pizza. That's, I mean, that is part of it. Um, And if that's what all it was, maybe I wouldn't feel so strongly against it. But as Alison McDowell has revealed, there's these things called human capital bonds and also pay for success programs. And this is something that almost nobody in the mainstream has heard of. And yet this is the heart and soul of, uh, of stakeholder capitalism. That's uh, the World Economic Forum name for what I call fascism. And so in stakeholder capitalism, what happens is the Microsofts and the Goldman Sachs of the world place they place strategic bets on outcomes. So it could be a health outcome. Let's say I, let's say the bio data for me shows that I'm borderline diabetic. People will actually invest in my getting better by following the recommendations of Dr. Watson over the internet. And people, and I won't even know about this. This is the really creepy thing. And I may even have a digital twin living in a parallel virtual world on which Goldman Sachs type investors will be investing in in a digital version of myself and also in a real world physical version of myself. And these things are very, very advanced. And they also also apply to whole neighborhoods. So for instance, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz discovered Um, that those riots that happened at the behest of Black Lives Matters in various blue check Democrat controlled cities in the US were all, every one of them was in a neighborhood that had one of these tax break. um, They're called opportunity zones, right? Yeah, they were all in opportunity zones where the, 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 the more devastated the neighborhood was, the more burnt out it was, the more the property values were low and the more that it was mostly black and people of color neighborhoods, the more their lives were immiserated, the better, the bigger the financial opportunity was for the investors. So people don't realize that this is going on and this is what we're all being herded into. It's this um, very dystopian, uh, system that's going to be very similar to China, but it will have its, you know, we do have some different traditions here. So, so it won't look exactly like China. They know that we need, we need to be sold on it a little bit more. So we're going to have both the carrot and the stick. The stick is you got to get this vaccine passport. You got to do what you're told. You, you have to take these inoculations of which there's many more mRNA drugs in the pipeline, by mm-hmm. the way. And, and if we don't cooperate, then we lose privileges. And if we do cooperate, we gain privileges, including maybe the right to travel a little bit and stuff like that. But meanwhile, all of the, like, we're going to be asking for this. This is the crazy thing. We're going to be 
especially the young people are going to say, yes, bring on those faster download speeds. They're going to be calling for it, not realizing that people they'll never meet. It's like they're looking at us through a one-way mirror. They can see us, but we can't see them. They'll not only see us, they'll know everything about us. They'll know when a woman is menstruating. They'll know when you're mm -hmm. ovulating. They'll know when you've had sex. They'll know what your blood sugar level is. They'll know whether you have kidney disease and they will speculate on it. And this isn't to make you healthy and it's not to make a better world. In fact, the worse the world is and the more environmentally devastated it is, the richer these people become. It's very sick and it's called technocracy and I call it totalitarianism. It's not just fascism or communism, it's a weird hybrid in which one thing that it, all these things have in common is that you and I surrender our property rights and our protection under the common law. And, and I think when you, talk, when you say property rights, it's important for people to understand that property includes your children. Property includes your own body. This is not just physical property like your lawnmower and your house and your car. This is your property, you personally. Um, now, I also, I just want to add a couple of things in here because it's, you know, and, and look, this is a difficult conversation to have. And I know that a lot of people listening are probably maybe not happy right now. And, but I feel it's important that we talk about these things. I want to point out that um, when you talk about technocracy, right, I think it's important in the US anyway, um, Joe Biden has now appointed, um, I don't know if it's the heads or the executives or who they are, but the top brass essentially at Amazon, at Uber, at Facebook, um, all of these big tech companies are now sitting He's basically appointed them, I believe, to his team. And I don't, I don't know the, the verbiage here, so I don't know if it's his cabinet or whatever, but he's basically appointed them to a government position, I believe, um, which, which again, you know, and he's a huge fan of technocracy. The other thing I want to point out is, you know, when you listen to this conversation and some of the words you put out there, Guy, you know, like can detect whether your blood sugar is off, right? Or detect whether you have kidney disease. I think for a lot of people that hear this conversation and go, okay, you guys are just completely crazy. Like this, there's no way. This is just like a bad sci-fi movie. Impossible. It's never going to happen. We have this technology now where we can actually do so many good things, right? Look, we can check someone's blood sugar remotely. We can see if they have kidney disease. We can monitor and track all of these things with the best of intentions, right? So that we can create a better world so that we can save the environment so that we can all live happy, peaceful lives. And I agree that we do have the technology to do that, but there's not a lot of money in that. Okay. And I think that um, the, the, that's the two parts, right? So we can go down the utopian blue sky path where, yep, we can use all this technology to save ourselves and everything else. Or we can go down the dystopian path where, you know, let's talk about the environment for a minute here. The, the dystopian path would basically be, I'm going to track all of your biometrics so that I can sell you drugs. Okay. Oh, your blood sugar's off. Well, hang on. Let me first sell you some shitty food to make your blood sugar go off. And then I'm going to, and th then, then, then I'll basically track your blood sugar and say, oh, look, you're heading towards diabetes. Here's your medication. And here's the side effects of the medication. So you need more medication for that. And now we have a repeat customer. That's the one example. Doing that, they're just going to now be able to do it in a very high tech way. Right. High tech. And also because of the tracking now, it's going to be micromanaged and you're getting data like you've never got before. Right. It's real time data. And also it's population based data. 
So when you're talking about this tracking and whatnot over a full global 5G network and plugged into the internet of things, what you're able to do is you're able to gather large scale data like we haven't had before. And of course, social media, Google tracking, Facebook, that's what they've been doing um, leading into this time right now. So so they are actively doing that, but we're going to see that scaled up fairly significantly. I want to talk very briefly here about the environment and and then kind of segue into our close, which is uh, the verbiage and the language that is being used by the World Economic Forum. So when we look at the environmental side of things, you know, this is a big piece that's coming out of the World Economic Forum is the sustainability development goals, right? I think that's what they're called, the SDGs. So sustainability development goals, um, we want to save the environment and all of these things. And I think those are absolutely noble causes. We've done a, a, we've destroyed our environment in many ways. But what's the, what's the background on that and what is actually going on there? Well, just as I've mentioned, Alison McDowell, if you want to learn about the Internet of Bodies and uh, 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 human capital bonds and all that good stuff. And by the way, her blog is called A Wrench in the Gears. So I suggest people look into that. My go-to person for the environmental side is Corey Morningstar. Uh, It's Corey with a C. She's a Canadian researcher and activist. And um, her blog is called Wrong Kind of Green, kind of mm. a, a riff, green for money or green for the environment. And she, mm. she collected a bunch of essays that she wrote into a book that you can find called The Manufacturing of Greta Thunberg. And what Corey Morningstar's uh, research perfectly aligns with my own and also my, my discoveries over 25 years of environmental journalism. Um, that the environmental movement has been hijacked. And so what's happening is, and we live, and I know we want to move toward closing, so I'll, I'll, I'll start to drop some positive hints in the mix here because we want to leave people with some hope and some things they can do. <clears throat> what, what is on offer is that for the first time that we know of in human history, we have the technology to actually usher in a kind of utopia. We could, like if we had used all the productivity gains since the the birth about 40 years ago of personal computing in a more egalitarian way, what people don't realize when they look at these billionaires, uh, you know, riding around on their jets, the Bill Gates and and, uh, who's the guy with the neural link and the, the, electric cars, Elon Musk. Elon Musk, yeah. We look at these people who are billionaires and and we think, oh, you know, I wish I could be like them. And setting aside the fact that a lot of them made their money from CIA contracts and they were not quite the innocent geniuses that we thought. Um, They were actually fronting government programs. But um, uh, we could use this technology instead of having a billionaire class, if those funds had been more equitably enjoyed by the populace, people could now be working a two or three day work week. We Mm. could have shifted into being much more of a leisure society. But as always happens, elites, uh, since the dawn of time, since the first pharaohs and kings were loading their grain storage facilities and then distributing it to the peasants in exchange for being exalted as gods 
Um, they've engaged in hoarding. And so we could, a lot of the technologies that are going to be used to oppress and enslave us could actually be used to create uh, a, a much more enjoyable world where people could travel and have much more leisure and work at things that interest them. Because it's true that the robots could take over all the drudge work. And this is very exciting. Mm -hmm. But what's happened is, and this is the, the essence of what I want to convey today, is that the elites foresaw this decades ago. And they, they saw the confluence of two things. And this is what everyone's missing. The two things that are converging right now is breathtakingly powerful technology that can really create a kind of Jetsons world and a fourth turning. We're at the end of a 80 to 100 year interest rate cycle. And the central bankers of the world know that over time, fiat currencies always move towards zero. So we, the central bankers like the US Fed have run out of tools to stimulate the economy. So what they're choosing instead of fiscal responsibility is to print money like crazy. Mm -hmm. they're, bank they're bankrupting the nations of the world on purpose because they wanna shift us into a world controlled by this new technology that they will set up for their benefit and not the rest of us. And then, um, uh, and, and they're, they're, going, they're going to let the economic collapse come. And it's baked in now. Even if everybody listening to this podcast suddenly woke up tomorrow and said, yes, you know, the, the medical data has been manipulated and this has all been massively misleading and we should just go back to our lives. Well, now we have hundreds of thousands of bankrupted businesses. The, air, the airlines will probably never recover. The hotel industry is destroyed. The restaurant industry is destroyed. You just have a handful of mega corporations left standing. And so it's baked in now that we're going to be facing a huge environmental correction. What we have to do, those of us who understand what's going on, is we need to link arms. We need to find each other. We need to join forces with groups like the Freedom Alliance that is being led or fronted by Professor Dolores Cahill of Ireland and the children, Children's Health Defense in, led by Robert Kennedy Jr. and his, his uh, Del Big Tree with his show, The High Wire. We need to find voices like this and people like this and people who have credible platforms and we need to jujitsu all of this and take this, you know, how in, in martial arts, they say you don't fight your opponent, you use his or her energy against mm -hmm. them, flip them. And basically what I'm holding out hope for, and I don't think it'll happen, and unfortunately, until the trap is mostly closed, but we need to take what these oligarchs are doing and you flip it around and, and take their nefarious use of these technologies and redirect it to the benefit of all of us. And that would also include rejecting some technologies. We, we, don't, we have to start considering that just because something's a new technology doesn't mean we should employ it. But we should certainly be very careful about how we employ these new technologies. And the reason that 
what we've discussed here today is so important about the arrests at the airlines and the airports, people being taken to black sites, um, pro peaceful protesters being thrown to the ground and handcuffed and arrested just for going out and questioning the official narrative and the massive censorship that's going on and all of this kind of stuff is because that's telling us which direction our corporate overlords are taking us with the technology. Mm-hmm. And you notice, uh, to just touch again on that environmental aspect, you notice that the United Nations and its panels with climate change and the environmental sustainability goals, you'll notice that they have this iconography and it usually shows people with the very flat images, like very stylized icons of a person with brown skin and black curly hair from somewhere in South America or something. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that on one level, but people need to be aware that this plan that's actually going to destroy a lot of those people's lives is being sold to people in the industrialized countries as being um, for the benefit of all. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember that the same rapacious big oil, big mining, big data companies that have engaged in predatory practices and started wars and people like Bill Gates, who is an absolute sociopath, as his previous you know, business associates will say, and that he was absolutely cutthroat business person. These are the people that we're going to entrust with making the world a better place. I don't think so. And the main problem I have is not just with what they're trying to do, but the fact that we're not being asked. When when were we asked to vote for, like like if I'm the prime minister of Canada and I'm concerned about people bringing a virus back to the country, shouldn't I ask the permission of the people? Shouldn't I hold a plebiscite or an election before I start building internment camps? And I might add, if you think those internment camps are, are, are okay, consider if you look at the um, request for proposals for these things, it didn't just say that these are for people coming back from trips. It, it has weasel words in there, like uh, for people returning to Canada and other purposes. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. They can pretty much, based on the wording uh, and, and the orders that they're uh, issuing, they can make these things mean anything they want. Uh, now, you referred to Joe Biden, and I've referred here to uh, Justin Trudeau, but it's also important for people to understand that at the political level, it's not just being driven by the international community and the federal level. What they've been very clever about is reaching down to the level of provincial um, premiers and in the United States to the level of governors. Senators, and also, and also municipal level committees and things like that. There's been a tremendous infiltration and corruption at that level. I don't know. I don't have a smoking gun to say how many millions of dollars might have been paid to these people. We know from the president of Belarus that he was offered almost $1 billion to lock down his country and destroy his economy which was presented as an aid package, but he said it was really a bribe and he wasn't prepared to take it. Um, But if we look at the municipal level and the provincial level and the state and municipal level in the states, 
this is where the rubber is hitting the road with a lot of these plans. So it's important to fight it at that level as well. But guys, I, I, let me let me play devil's advocate here for a minute because I know that there's the the, the question on people's minds right now is how, how can they all be in on it, right? So, so this this is something we hear all the time. I mean, this cannot simply be fabricated by every politician in every corner of every municipality in every country in the world. Surely not. So so how is it? that this is really going on and therefore it's a conspiracy theory? Well, I've asked myself the same question because I'm contrary to what people might think. I'm actually, I'm not drawn to conspiracy personally. I, I just generally don't like it. But I've had to admit myself that I prefer the word collusion. There is collusion taking place at every level. And it's, I think if you... It doesn't actually take that many people to pull something like this off, contrary to what you might think. Uh, we have these groups that meet in private uh, at Davos. We have the Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, some groups like that. You can have several thousand people working at an international level who, because they're working through non-democratic organizations like the United Nations, which was a completely created by the Rockefellers, I might add. When you think United Nations, think Rockefellers, um, who, were, who were and remain eugenicists, I might add. Um, and I'm sorry that that sounds conspiratorial. <laughs> Ironically. It, 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 really only, it really only takes a few thousand people and maybe a few hundred companies acting in their own self-interest through these international agencies to project down to the nation states this kind of agenda. And then if you have uh, people in Silicon Valley talking as Whitney Webb has exposed through Freedom of Information Act revelations, talking and having high-level meetings with the three-letter agencies of the security and surveillance apparatus, the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, all those. And then you have some major media organs that were infiltrated years ago. And I'm specifically thinking of the Washington Post here and the New York Times, which have a very dubious history with the CIA and also being cheerleaders for war, um, and CNN as well. Uh, and then you have the self-interest of people in these corporations all lining up to get in on these new digital technologies and the chance to make millions and millions of dollars and, and making millions and billions from the vaccines, as they call them. Um, you know, you, you maybe only need a few hundred hardcore conspirators and sociopaths, but they can, they can steward many thousands of people in, in positions of influence to guide the society in the direction you want. And if you gussy it all up in the terminology of sustainability and climate change and racial equality and gender equality, People go along with it because they think that they're helping save the world. And they don't realize that a lot of those are code words. Like, like when, I th- when I hear about sustainability, I think, okay, we're going to have um, 
truly responsive local democracy and small scale farming and sustainable agriculture and permaculture. But that's not what these guys mean at all. They're talking about huge um, uh, uh, liquid nat natural gas terminals and mega nuclear power plants and huge hydroelectric dams. In other words, things that en enrich billionaire plutocrats and kick back huge uh, uh, fees to dictators and things like that. So it's really a continue, and th that system already exists. That is how the world right. is. Right, That's right, right. What my six years of research into global culture revealed was this corruption. And just consider one little tidbit. I'll just throw out one little tidbit. Consider that the, the organization for, that independently investigates chemical weapons attacks um, the, uh, sent a team into Syria to investigate one of the gas attacks that was alleged to be orchestrated by President Assad. And they found that the event had been staged by the militants that we sponsor from the West. Well, the OPCW buried that report and in fact changed its findings and falsified them. And then a whistleblower, more than one, a bunch of whistleblowers came out and said, hey, wait a minute, you're not reporting what we found. And they were got rid of, they were silenced. So, so just consider that even with one agency that can determine whether or not we go to war, which Biden is now saber rattling to take us to war with Iran. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think and, and, and Myanmar as well, Myanmar. And, 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 and Syria is going to be in their gun sites as well. Um, this is based on deep, deep corruption of these agencies acting at the behest of corporations that make money from war. So maybe one of the solutions, if we want to shift to talking about solutions, is that it should not be legal to be an art, a weapons manufacturer or military equipment supplier in a for-profit scheme. And similarly, in the health industry, with drugs and inoculations, it, it should not be that people who make money from vaccines should in, should be, well, first of all, they shouldn't, it should be a nonprofit business. And those people should be kept very, very far away from policymaking decisions. And yet here we have somebody like Bill Gates, who is explicitly going to make billions of dollars from vaccines, heavily influencing and masterminding health policy around the world through United Nations agencies. So, mm -hmm. So while some of my confreres in the resistance movement like to talk about how evil and nefarious these people are, I think it's more useful to think of them as rational actors in a system that re rewards sociopathy. And so they're actually behaving logically then. So you and I might not behave that way, but there are people who will. So we need to redesign the system from the ground up. And we need to take the profit incentive out of many of these things and get these technologies working for a world in which we can all have a two or three day work week working at things we enjoy. Or maybe we'll all make a living as yoga teachers and ski instructors and we'll shift to a totally leisure uh, society. But um, we need to rise up and make that happen because what's obviously happening now is that about 1% of the world population 
is causing all the technological benefits to accrue to their benefit at the expense of the rest of the populace. And um, I'll leave it to people to do their own research into what they plan for the rest of humanity. At a minimum, we're gonna be living in a world of curtailed rights and a loss of personal freedoms and liberty and an inability to enjoy the property that we earn through our own work. Um, but it, if you look at the Georgia Guidestones and other things, what they have in store for us could actually be a lot worse than that. Yeah, I, I want to wrap this segment up. And you know, you touched on this very briefly, and and I feel that it's a it's a very important thing to to talk about. And this is the and it kind of ties in with the World Economic Forum language, right? What I started to notice out there is, you know, it kind of circles all the way back to the beginning of our, our podcast here is, you know, this division in society, right? And the division in society and the polarization of society, one of the core themes that runs through all of it is that if you don't comply, you are a bad person, okay? You're, you're a bad person, you're a psychopath, you're out to kill people. And the language that we're using now to, to kind of not just skirt around that, because ultimately what's going on is we're, we're pitting people against one another. Okay. That, that's the whole point of division. So that, you know, I think you're an idiot and I don't like you and you don't like me because of what we believe in. And we've all lost friends over this pandemic, right? All of us. But the, the language that is being used now, I feel that, um, you know, you spoke about things like equality, Right. And while I think equality is fantastic, um, it's not what you and I would deem equality. It's, it's very different. Right. It's almost like lowering everyone to the lowest common denominator. OK. Um, yeah. Erasing, erasing diversity. So, so instead of celebrating diversity where I would love to, I mean, I've traveled the world. So have you. I love learning about other cultures, immersing myself in other cultures, celebrating other cultures, celebrating their food and celebrating these things. What we're now doing is we're spinning everything to say, well, hang on, if you do these things, you're a racist. Or if you do these things, it's cultural appropriation. Or if you do these things, you don't stand for equality. And I think that people are not thinking the whole thing through. Um, but my point in saying all of this is this is the language that is being used by the World Economic Forum. If you go onto their website, they use these words and they have that imagery so that if you subscribe to that and you look at it and you subscribe to that narrative and that belief and it gets etched in your psychology, what you are then telling yourself is I am a good person. Okay. And I need to do the things that these people are telling me to do so that I can be a good person. Yeah. And then when you carry it through, anyone else who doesn't do these things, you are a bad person. And we're now seeing 1-800 snitch lines, right? So you got snitch lines, you've got people that are ratting their neighbors out for having a few friends over for dinner. You've got people that are calling law enforcement because someone doesn't have a mask. Maybe they have a medical exemption, who the hell knows, right? But you're calling the cops. And we're now starting to see family members fight one another. Okay. Like I, I bring this up because I feel like if we're going to evolve spiritually, consciously, and really move society forward into the utopia that we're talking about, we need to really identify this. We need to acknowledge it and, and realize that it exists. And we then also need to reconcile these things so that we can actually come to some common ground and start communicating properly with one another. 
because I feel like public discourse has just vanished, right? It, it's, it's such a toxic environment right now. And I think that is part of the plan. Yes, I'm, I, I can't claim to, you didn't have me on your podcast because I'm a medical expert, because I'm clearly not. I have my informed opinions, but um, what, if there's one thing I am an expert in, it's communication. I've been in the media my whole life. I come from a newspaper family. Um, my stepfather started the Toronto Sun, which became a network of newspapers. And my dad and both my step-parents as well worked for the Toronto Telegram in its heyday. So I grew up with this stuff, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember the days when my father and stepfather would not, would not accept, uh, say, a gift from a travel company or a free airline ticket because they realized that that could be held against them. And they, what they needed as journalists to be truly independent and always be able to criticize Air Canada or whoever was going to give them some kind of junket. Nowadays, it's the opposite. People in the media, it's all about access journalism and you, they're sucking up to celebrities and politicians and they don't dare criticize them because then they'll lose their access. Um, so we're in a terrible position where the media has flipped over and it's now engaged in propaganda and it's been heavily infiltrated as well. Uh, by the CIA and other agencies going back to the Church Street Commission and all that. This never actually went away, an Operation Mockingbird. And uh, what I would implore people to do is you've got, we all need to remind ourselves of some recent history. You know, genocides and orchestrations of programs to dominate groups of people have, they're not just from deep history. The other day on Facebook, for instance, I shared an excerpt from a book by Milton Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R, called They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. And he describes in there the very slow, gradual slide of Germany into fascism. And, it, and what people forget is that it, Nazism didn't take root because everybody suddenly woke up one morning and said, yeah, we support Nazism and we should want to exterminate the Jews and the mentally and physically handicapped. It started off as, as very subtle cues in the society that, you know, we're rebuilding the economy and you don't want to go against the, our leadership and this is all for our safety and benefit. And the, and the Germans, the Nazis used to use this idea of hygiene all the time in a way that's eerily parallel to today. Mm. Um, and it happens very subtly. And so what this article uh, uh, points out is that you give up a little right here and a little right there. And let's say you're a university professor and you realize that your hiring committee has just passed over, say, a Jewish person because that's not what the university wants suddenly. And you realize 10 years later when the Jews are being sent to gas chambers that you missed your opportunity 10 years prior. You should have stood up and said something in that hiring committee meeting at the university. Because if you wait until people are being loaded onto cattle cars, it's too late. And it's because I have that understanding and I understand the history, like I've studied the genocide of, in Cambodia and what Pol Pot did and the one that uh, Susan um, 
uh, mentioned the other day about uh, uh, Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And you study these genocides, which are very recent, or what we've done to our own indigenous people in Canada or places like Australia. Um, being a student of that, I realized I need to speak up now, not two or three years from now when the trap is fully closed. And I've got to tell you, this thing is moving fast, people. Yep. It's going breathtaking speed and we're being kept off balance all the time. And mark my words, as soon as they've finished with the COVID project, which is scheduled in the IMF documents to end in 2025. So hold on, folks, you got four more years of this, according to their schedule. But even before then, you'll get something else. They're going to crash the stock market. Uh, there's even talk of like a, a, an EMF pulse, all this kind of stuff. There's so many ways they can keep us off balance. We have to keep our focus on building the society that we want, which is local, organic, authentic, physical interactions in the real world. We've got to take off the masks. We've got to hug each other. We have to get together. We have to stand up against these draconian policies and stop buying the lie that it's for our safety and our hygiene. And I'll just mention that I think it's on November, uh, excuse me, February 11th. I, I can check that. Um, some of the group leaders, yeah, it's February 11th. Um, the leaders of all the Canadian resistance groups, and there's many of them, there's dozens, if not hundreds, and they have thousands and tens of thousands of members, and people need to know that. They're saying that on February 11th, there's a call to action, and it's for every store and every restaurant to open their doors and for us to all stop complying. So mark that date in your calendar and go outside and see what's happening. And if you see a restaurant opening or you see a store opening, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask, but go and support them. They did it in Italy, 50,000 restaurants and businesses opened on a single day and the government backed down and they started to take their society back. And that's what we need to do. Mm. Well, I think it's a great note to end on. And um, I'm glad that we actually had a longer discussion today. You know, it's, it's good to have these long podcasts sometimes. And I think it's good to have them because there's so much to unpack. You know, it's, it's so, there's so much to talk about and there's so many angles to look at and so many layers to all of this. And I think even in a short two hours, it's difficult to kind of work through all of it. Um, but yeah, but I wanted to just say thanks so much for, for coming on the show, Guy. It's great to hang out with you. Um, I, I miss seeing you in person because I know you're not here right now. Um, but nonetheless, we maintain our connection uh, through phone and internet. Um, again, well, I'm still fighting the good fight from where I am. And my goal is to be able to return to Canada within the next couple of years and start spending my summers there and my winters in the global south. And, you know, it's funny, just one year ago, that would have been a totally normal thing for a 60-year-old man to do, to say, I'm going to sort of semi-retire to a tropical location, and come home and see my kids in the summers, and consider that that is now, uh, I am violating the government's directions, and they've made it almost impossible for me to come home now. So uh, I have a huge incentive 
because I want to see my kids to keep fighting this and for us to win this struggle, my friend. And I'm very honored to uh, be engaged in, in that with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's such important work, you know, and I know that a lot of people who are tuned into this show and who are in our space, um, I think that as time wears on, we we realize that even if you were doubtful or skeptical in the beginning, I think that more and more people are starting to wake up and question what exactly is going on and what is the end point and why is this happening? And so I hope that um, in our short uh, two hours here together, give or take, I hope that you folks listening out there at least have some better understanding of why these things are happening in the background or what is happening in the background and the way that we're being presented with them on the face. Okay. Well, one other thing, Brad, I Please. wanted to mention before we get off here is I'm a regular contributor to and a financial backer of a new Canadian newspaper called Druthers, D-R-U-T-H-E-R-S, as in the phrase, if I had my druthers. And it's a newspaper that is produced by my friend, Sean Jason, and it has a website that has that name that you can navigate to. And we just came out with our February edition where I have a splashy article that talks about much of what we've spoken about here. It's called Cyborg Avatar Capitalism. And my title of my article is called iRobot. Um, but that's the, uh, I think that was the January or fe- maybe it was the February edition. We, we came up with 100,000 copies that are being distributed across Canada. And what I'm going to ask your readers to do is to please visit that site, contribute whatever you can to that project, consider writing an article for it if, you, if you're uh, inclined that way. But even if it's just a small donation, because this is how we get the truth out in addition to podcasts like this, because it's more difficult for them to censor a physical underground newspaper that is being handed out. But also the articles are available on the website. You can read them in a digital format, just as if you had the newspaper in your hot little hands. Mm-hmm. So please support Druthers and some of the very best information that I've seen is coming out in that newspaper. And this is how we do this. We do it at a local level. We do it underground. We make connections and linkages and we wake people up, even if it's just one person at a time. And we build sufficient strength to stand up against these people who do not have our best intentions at heart. So thanks Mm -hmm. for letting me put in a word for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for those of you listening, you can check out the show notes. Um, I'll have uh, the few links that Guy uh, mentioned. And I think I'm going to put up a couple of other things. Um, That letter from Health Canada that uh, I mentioned, uh, I'll stick that up there as well. And then um, also a leaked document from a Canadian politician that um, at first, you know, I know you and I have spoken about this guy. At first, we thought that leaked uh, email from a Liberal Party insider was, we weren't sure if it was real or not, and we're still not sure if it's real, but uh, basically lays out the whole agenda and the plan for the next um, couple of years, I believe. And uh, basically, we are, um, things are unfolding according to that plan, uh, almost to the date. So I'm going to put uh, some of that up there as well and link to an article on that. And, you know, the bottom line here is this, all right? The purpose of shows like this and and my intention here is merely to encourage critical thinking and to get you thinking about things and questioning things. That's it. 
right? I, I'm, I'm not here to teach you what to think or, you know, I just want you to start looking at this and questioning things and thinking a little bit more outside the box and uh, see where that road um, leaves you. But the, the thing that I will just say to wrap this up is now more than ever, we need community and community builds resilience. Uh, community keeps us together. It keeps us human. It keeps us strong. It keeps us resilient. And uh, that's really what's needed right now. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks so much, Guy, for coming on the show. And uh, for those of you listening, you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. <laughs>